In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to continue in the series that we started several weeks ago called Asking for a Friend. Uh, really appreciate all of the questions that were submitted before we started this. Um, and, and to be honest, I've had a number of questions that have been submitted after starting this. Um, it's prompted me in a couple of different directions uh, to think about the possibility of doing this as an annual sermon series. Um, I've also considered maybe doing uh, a couple of videos uh, that might, we might make available to you because I just can't get to all of the questions unless we were to do this like every Sunday. Uh, but there were, I'd love to do that and just hope that we can. But most importantly, and this really was my heart behind this, I want Family Life Church to be a place where it's okay to ask questions. I want you, I want us to become comfortable, and I want people who come to visit to feel comfortable asking questions because we've all got them. And the more we bring them to light, the more we give opportunity for the truth of God's word to speak to every one of those aspects. And so I encourage you, if you have questions, go find one of your pastors and ask your questions. We would love to walk through that with you. But this week, the question that I, I wanted to hit, and I've been doing a couple at a time, but this one is, is pretty big. So I just want to do this one by itself, is this question. My friend wants to know how to handle people who don't follow God. You know, I think this is really important to us because we're, we're really struggling. And, and, and I don't know, I'm, I'm 39 years old, so not super old. Next year, I'll be super old. Um, sorry, for those of you who are over 40, I mean, no insults. Sorry. I saw a lot of people get really uncomfortable there, like, wait a minute, 40. Um, you know, but I, I'm amazed at looking back even in my lifetime and to see that at this point in our history, we are the most divided I've ever seen in history or in my lifetime. We are so divided as a people. And, and unfortunately, and I want to touch on this more as we go through this message, it has, it has worked its way into the church as well. And we need to be very aware of that um, because it could get us off mission. But I want to talk about this today. And really, uh, the, the question that lingers here is how can you love family and friends who aren't living for God? And I get this, you know, I get this question sometimes. I've got a son or a daughter, or I've got a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad who they live this way that is counter to the word of God. What am I supposed to do about that? Am I supposed to write them off and say, I can't have fellowship with you because you do things that are ungodly? Am I supposed to love them and support them and, and, and be there for them? And, and I really want to tackle this, but I want to preface it with this statement. In my entire life, I've never known anybody to be hated to Jesus, ever. It doesn't work. You can't hate someone to Jesus. You can only love them toward Jesus. And so I want to speak to that as we get in this. But a couple of background thoughts here of why I think we struggle with loving the lost. Number one, we struggle to love them because we feel hated by them. And that's okay, because that's a reality. Jesus said to his disciples, listen, as my followers, I just want you to be aware of this. No false pretenses, guys. They hate me. And so guess what? They're going to hate you too, because you're countercultural. You're not the same as everybody else. So this is something for us to really take to heart. It's part of being a follower of Jesus. We are countercultural, and as such, we're hated by the culture. And again, 
In the, in the word of God, the understanding of love, the best definition of love, the agape love, which is the love of God, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. And you've heard it at every wedding you've ever been to. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud or rude or self-seeking. Love rejoices in evil. It does not delight in good. Love always perseveres. Now, biblically speaking, There's not really a word for hatred as though it's an equal and opposite reaction. It's the lack of love, meaning to hate something means I have shown no love to this object, to this thing, to this person. And we feel hated and we have to watch that. Number two, we sometimes see our mission as our enemy. And church, this is the one that kind of frightens me for where we're at right now is because of our social and political divides. This concerns me. Because, yes, I I get it that there are things on the social platforms, there are things on political platforms that we disagree with, but we have to be very careful that we don't allow hatred in our hearts for those people because they're the very ones that God called us to save. It's them. And if we become filled with hatred for those who don't think the way that we think, it's going to be really hard to lead them to Jesus. Number three, we expect people who don't know God to act as though they do. It's not, re- it's not realistic, right? Can we just be honest for a second? Me without Jesus is not a great guy. I'm just going to be very honest. And you without Jesus is not so hot either. Okay? The difference inside of you is Jesus. And people should see that difference in you. But we, we often throw up this cliche and we've got to be careful that the realities of following God don't become cliche. But we say it as such. We're just like, they need Jesus. We see somebody, oh, they just need Jesus. And uh, yes, they do. That's why they act the way they do, because they need Jesus. So let's stop being so shocked by the way that other people act who don't have Jesus. And let's just take it for the reality. Number four, we worry that we're losing the battle. Listen, there are battles, and I get this as a parent, as a dad with teenagers. Um, I, I, I can really identify with this because I, I look at the world around me and I see my children being bombarded daily with things that are ungodly and unscriptural. And there are times I feel like in my own self, I'm losing the battle to reach my kids. I'm just one voice that's trying to teach them something. And I get questions from them. Why doesn't anybody else think this way? Nobody else has a problem with this. Nobody else thinks that way. And I get that concern that we're losing the battle. But I promise you this, scripture tells us we win in the end. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But I wanted to jump into Romans chapter one, and I would really encourage you, uh, go after service today and read Romans chapter one. Don't do it right now because you won't listen to me, and that's bad, okay? And uh, we'll point at you and say, shame on you. Um, But Romans chapter one speaks very clearly to a lot of the issues that we are facing today, including homosexuality and transgenderism. And it's in Romans chapter one. I know that we look at these things and we're like, this is a new form of perversion uh, that has never existed before. Listen, these things existed in first century Rome. They were there. Um, I had the privilege uh, three years ago of visiting Pompeii in Italy, um, which was covered by a volcano in 79 AD. When they uncovered it, there are some things in there that are very explicitly homosexual activity taking place in that city and celebrated in that time period. These are not new things. But this is what God says is the reason why these things are happening. It's verse 28 to 32. He says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, 
He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and (gasps) gossip. I know we are so quick to throw out gossip like it doesn't matter, but the Bible lists the seven deadliest sins. It says that the, the seven deadliest sins are bound up in the heart of a gossip. God says that's pretty bad. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Can you believe this? They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Listen, Jesus made so clear to us his mission, his goal to save the world. God made so clear, even as we read John 3, 16, God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son to save this world. But God says, I can only go so far, and if humanity is going to live in depravity, then I've got to release them to do so. And and you know, this comes up in the midst of our issue with loving lost people because we often ask ourselves, why do wicked people seem to prosper sometimes? Why do we see wicked people who seem to be blessed? Because God says, I had to, I, I gave up on, I had to release them in their thinking. I had to let them go in what they were thinking. There's a word here that you've probably heard many times that I really want to redirect us to the actual definition. How many of you have ever heard the word ignorant before? You know, if somebody's being stupid, they'll be like, you're being ignorant. Knock it off. Stop being ignorant. The word ignorant, by definition, means to do something without knowing that it's wrong. That's what ignorant means. And there is an ignorance in the people who are lost and not living for God. Yes, they're doing wrong. Yes, maybe for those who have some kind of a biblical background, a church upbringing, they might be able to say, I know I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I'll do it anyway. But there is a large portion of our culture today in this post-Christian world that literally doesn't even know that what they're doing is wrong. They're living in ignorance. And, And I think this is so important for us Because we have to see them compassionately in order to be able to love them in ignorance. A couple of takeaways here. Number one, loving lost people requires compassion. Listen, you can't love in a fake way. Love is real or it doesn't exist at all. You can't love people to their face and talk about them behind their back. You can't say you love lost people and then go on Facebook and say all these rants about them and how terrible they are and how they're all going to die and go to hell. Now, it might be true. Please don't misunderstand me. Yes, that might be true. But that should drive us compassionately to the place of saying, those people need Jesus and God's calling me to be Jesus to them. Number two, loving lost people requires humility. As I said before, there isn't any of us in this room. Turn to your neighbor and say, you included. There isn't one of us in this room that is better than the most ungodly person that we know. We need to accept that. You know, the only thing that looks good on this sinful man is Jesus. If I stop acting like Jesus, you don't even want to know Chris Massey. 
I'm not saying that in any kind of way. You just don't want to know me. I fleshed out looking at the path that I was on before Jesus in my life, and I can tell you it ends in one of two places, prison or death. Without Jesus, those are the places I see myself in my late 30s. I would either be in prison or dead. There's not one of us in here that's better. What's better in me is Jesus. It's not me. And so when we get to that place of humility that says, that person is just like me, but I have Jesus and they need him. That's the humility that God puts into our hearts. Number three, loving lost people is not the same as condoning their actions. Listen, let's put this on a real level here and I get this question. I've had it asked me a number of times. I got a nephew who is a practicing homosexual and I've been invited to his wedding where he's marrying another man. Am I supposed to go to that? Or am I supposed to say, no, I can't go to that. I can't have any fellowship with that. Let's put it on a real level because this is where it it gets uh, the struggle for us. If I go, I'm condoning their actions. If I don't go, they'll think I don't love them. And this is the hard part for us because there is a difference between love and condoning. Now, from the church aspect, we say to ourselves that I want to love. Again, we just said this a minute ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. My decision to love is my decision to express the love of God to the people around me. Meaning, to this person, my nephew who's getting married, I'm going to be patient and kind. I will not be boastful or proud or rude. I will not hold any record of wrong. I will not rejoice in what is evil, but will delight in good because I know that love perseveres. However... We live in a cultural place now that on the other side of this equation are people who say, if you don't condone my actions, you don't love me. So we have this big gap here that is taking place. And again, it's something else that's creating division for us because it really makes us feel unsettled. I don't want to condone their actions, but I do want to love them. And then on the other side saying, they refuse to condone my actions, so they don't love me. So what does Jesus, how does Jesus respond to a situation like this? I think the clearest picture for us is the woman at the well. Jesus goes, and if you're not familiar with the story, there's a woman uh, who's gathering water at a well, and Jesus goes and sits down next to her and says, I need a drink of water. Would you get me a drink of water? She starts to talk with him and tells her, listen, if you had any idea who I was, you'd ask me for water because I would be able to give you something that lasts forever. He then goes on to tell her what she already knows about herself, but he shouldn't know. He says, you've been divorced five times, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. He is clearly identifying to her, you are a sinful person, but he says, I love you. I love you. God loves you. God has a plan for you. And then he says this to her, go forward and sin no more. Meaning, yes, I can love somebody without condoning their actions, but I also have to reinforce a godly principle that says, I want to see you living in a way that that is upward of what God desires for you. So do you go to that wedding? I wish I could give you a blanket answer, yes or no. You have to seek the Lord about that and ask him, how how do I best show love to this person that needs to know you, Jesus? How do I do that? Because... I don't want to condone their actions, but I do want to love them. And I want them to feel love because nobody has ever been hated to Jesus. So you need to ask God and seek him on that. I wish it was so simple as to just say this or that, but we've got to be a people of prayer who seek God and say, Lord, you tell me, 
What is the God decision here? What is the love decision? How can I show these people that you care about them and that you still have a plan for their lives? One of the things that I see here, and I wanted to share this with you, in Revelation 12, this idea of us losing the battle is shown here in the ultimate winning of the war. And this is how it says it happens. In Revelation 12, verse 11, it says this. They defeated Satan by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. How many of you have heard that before? They, in other translations, it says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The lamb is Jesus who gave himself as the all-sufficient sacrifice. His blood, which covered the sin of many, was sufficient. And the testimony of godliness inside of us, that was our keys to victory. Can I tell you that's only half of the verse? The second half says this, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Now, that is a completely different story. And the one I think that speaks most to this situation for how do we love ungodly people? Here's the truth. And and listen, take a moment to assess for yourself where you fit in this. We love this life more than we should. We are more caught up in the things of this world than probably God would desire. And I'm not pointing fingers at that. I'm, I'm pointing at this guy too. Please. But our biggest concerns, and and I'm not saying this flippantly because I share them with you. I've got mouths to feed. I've got a mortgage. I've got cars to keep on the road and maintain and take care of. I've got a yard. I've got all of those things. But I have come to this place in my life where I need to remind myself daily that the things in front of me that are most pressing are not always most important. The things in your life that are most pressing, that are demanding the most of your time, your job, right? Your family. Not to say that your family is not important, but God says there's something that is the most important thing, and it is the fact that we live lives that are dead to this world and that are surrendered to the plan that God has to reach lost people. And this is how, this is the key to victory that he describes here. By the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, and among a people who did not love this life so much that they were afraid to lose it. You know, if the question was posed to any one of us, you could win your neighbor, but it would cost you your house. Would we do it? You could win you're a child, but you'll never be able to have a car again. You've got to walk everywhere. We'd probably do that, right? But these are the very things that God speaks to. And I'm not saying this in a condemning way or that, that God says the only way we can love lost people is to be homeless and walk everywhere. That's not what I'm saying. I really hope that's not what you're saying, Lord. But here's the reality. And if we were to take stock, it's, it's in us. We are very much consumed with maintaining and building our own kingdoms at the cost sometimes of forgetting that God has called us 
to be focused on building his kingdom. We can't love lost people unless we reprioritize our lives. That's what he says here. I mean, that's not just my opinion. God says we've got to reprioritize our lives. What matters most? God, would you give me a passion for lost people? And listen, passion, I've often taught on this word because it's a Latin word. And the definition of passion means to suffer. We think of passion as thing, the thing I'm just most thrilled about. The word passion means to suffer. What it truly means is that I believe in this so much, I'm willing to suffer for it. I'm desperate for it. And, and again, are we in the place of being so desperate to save lost people that it's keeping us awake at night? That it's challenging our priorities, whether they be in our calendar or financially. Is it challenging us enough that we can't stand the thought that my next door neighbor, that if they died today, would enter into eternity without knowing Jesus? Does that bother me? Does it keep me awake at night? And we're so consumed by everything else. And the question just keeps coming, well, how do I love lost people? You've got to become desperate for lost people. You've got to become desperate. And the best way we see this is in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says to the Philippian church, don't be selfish. Selfish, what do you mean? Like, we can't have anything or do anything. Listen, you've got to seek that out with the Lord. Don't be selfish. He says, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Church, how do you love lost people? It's very simple. With everything you've got. With every fiber of your being, you love lost people. You put your arm around them and you tell them Jesus loves them. You know, for those of you who have kids, you probably experienced at one point in your life where they come into your house and they are just a mess. Covered in mud, something sticky, and you're just looking at this and you just can't believe they just drug this into your house, right? Because you're thinking about your carpet that's got to be scrubbed. You're thinking about that new outfit that you just bought them. Those are school shoes! Ugh. Making it real. Just making it real. But you, you still love your kids. And you'll clean up the mess. Might make you mad, but you'll clean it up. And though you'll probably rant as I do, maybe you're all more holy than I am. I'm never buying you another pair of shoes again. You can start buying your own clothes. You calm down a little bit. Let's go buy some clothes. <sighs> now I'm telling you, these are school shoes. You only wear them to school. But you do it because you love them. You wouldn't kick them out of your house and say, don't you ever come back to my house again until you're clean. Don't you ever set foot in my house again until you're right. Get out of here. Be a terrible parent if that's what you said to your children. 
God so desperately loves his children. And we're, I'm going to be honest. We, if somebody else's kid walks into the room and they're covered in mud, I'm probably not going to be like, oh, come here, give you a hug. That's your kid. That's your problem. But Roman made me, still your problem. <laughs> Sorry. But a desperation for lost people comes from seeing the people in our lives as lost brothers and sisters that need Jesus. And they don't act like Jesus because they don't know him. They don't think like Jesus because they weren't taught to. They might think differently from you, act differently from you. Believe it or not, they may even vote differently from you. Could you still love them? Could you still walk up and wrap your arms around them and say, I see you covered in dirt and grime and grossness, but my father loves you so much and so do I. That's desperation for lost people. Staying awake at night because you just can't stand the thought that people in your community, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, they don't know Jesus. Being drawn to prayer for them. Getting desperate. God, build your kingdom. I'm done building mine. If we're honest, that kind of desperation hasn't hit us. But a passion for the lost changes you and it changes them. And I really believe as I was reading through Revelation 12 this week, that, that statement, they did not love this life so much that they were afraid to lose it. It just hit me right between the eyes because we love this life and we don't want to give it up. But God says, if you really love, if you're really passionate, you would love people the way I would love them. You would sacrifice the way I've sacrificed. You would give up some of your dreams because you know that if you did so, there are lost people who might come to know Jesus. And church, can I tell you, I feel so convicted by this statement. I was not put on this world to just build my kingdom. You were not put on this world to just have the nicest house, to set, up your, set yourself up for a glorious retirement and make sure that everything in the light, your life is good. and We are here to reach lost people. That's why we exist. As a church, we exist to love lost people. We exist to care more about them than we do about ourselves. And church, I'm, it saddens me. I've seen it so many times. We get so worked up that somebody stained the pew. Somebody spilled coffee. Somebody spilled juice. Somebody didn't this or didn't that. They didn't know how to dress right. Did you see what she was wearing when she came? Who cares? She came. Praise God. Can you believe that gay or lesbian couple walked into the back of the church? Who cares? They came. Let's love them.
This is why God put us here, church. And all I can say is, how do you love lost people? You love them with everything you've got. Until there's nothing in your life that you say, I would, I would trade anything that I have so that somebody can know Jesus. If I have something in my life that I'm like, well, well, maybe not that. I'm not willing to give up this or give up that. I'm not willing to go without this. Or, until that list is gone, we're not desperate. Church, there's a world that needs to know Jesus. And you, you, me, we're the ones that God sent into the Shenango Valley in Pennsylvania, who God himself commissioned and said, I want to reach every lost person here. I want to reach every broken person here. I want to reach every single person that doesn't know me, that's covered in filth and shame and brokenness. I want to reach all of them with my love. And the way I'm going to do it is through my people showing my love to a lost world. That's it, church. The blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and a people who don't love this life so much that we fear losing it. Will you pray with me? God, on our best days, it is hard for us to truly think of what it means to sacrifice for your kingdom. We can get so hung up on building our kingdom and adding to our luxuries and our comforts. Working in order to just pay bills and keep mouths fed. God, we get so hung up on all of these things that are pressing against us on every side. It's one of the greatest strategies that the enemy of God has ever used is to fill us with such busyness and such obligation that we lose sight of our mission. And God, I believe you're calling forth a church, a people who would say, I love Jesus so much and I have such a heart for lost people that I'm willing to die to myself, my own dreams, my own ambitions, my stuff, so that lost people can know Jesus too. God, teach us to be satisfied and for our greatest hunger to be that others might know you. As we're in prayer this morning, I just want to ask you if you're here, maybe you've never given your life to Jesus or maybe this idea that no matter what you've been through, God still loves you and has a plan for you. Maybe that's never been spoken to you. Please hear me. Jesus loves you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together before he wants to save you. His arms are open to the dirtiest, messiest you that you've ever imagined. And if that's you and you're here this morning and say, I want to accept that love of Jesus in my life. Can I just ask you to slip up my hand so I can pray for you? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you would say, if I'm being honest with myself, the tug of the things of this world is probably greater than the tug of my heart for the mission. And I want God to change that in me. If that's you, can I ask you to slip up a hand because I want to pray for you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hands all over the room. Thank you. I want a greater heart for the things that matter for God. 
And I ask you to stand as we get ready to close out today. And we're going to take communion together in a few moments. But for those of you who raised your hand to say, I want relationship with Jesus. I want to receive that love of God that he has for me. I want us to pray that together this morning. But I also want to pray for us who are in this place to say, I know that I need a greater heart for the lost than what I've had. I need a greater love for the lost than what I've had. I want to see the pull in my life to the things of this world released so that I am drawn to reach lost people. I want to pray for you. Because that's what God's working on us. And church, it's countercultural. It goes against everything you're taught to believe about this life. It goes against every commercial, every TV show, everything you're seeing on YouTube, everything, all of it. It goes against all of it. But it's what God has in store for you and his means of reaching lost people. So whether you raised your hand or not, will you pray this prayer with me this morning? Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and being patient with me. And I receive your love, even in my brokenness. I know I'm not perfect, but I wanna be yours. Come into my heart and into my life and be my king and best friend in Jesus' name. Gotta lift up those in here who know that there is a tug on their hearts on their minds, on their thinking that draws them to a place that is counter to what you desire for them. And God, it is no easy thing for us to give up the things of this life so that you can have your way in our hearts. But I pray, oh God, that even if it's just one person in this room or one person watching us online, if it's just one God, would you get a hold of that one heart? Would you completely transform the priorities of that one heart and help them to realize, God, that they were created for more? That it wasn't just about surviving the daily demands of this life, but that you have called them as a missionary to sacrifice for the sake of reaching lost people. And God, we thank you that we get the chance to do that. And I pray that that would truly become our heart and our mindset that what matters most is your kingdom and not ours. We thank you in Jesus' name. We're gonna take